Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Infield. Today, I'm excited to speak with John Devlin, PharmD, FCCS, the lead author on the new guidelines for the prevention and management of pain, agitation, sedation, delirium, immobility, and sleep disruption in adult patients in the ICU, also known as the PAD-IS guidelines. Dr. Devlin is an associate professor at Northeastern University and has been involved in the ICU liberation committees and collaboratives. Before we start, do you have any disclosures to report? Uh, only uh, funding, research funding from um, the National Institutes of Aging, NHLBI, um, and AstraZeneca, and the American College of Clinical Pharmacy. Great. Um, the the PADIS guidelines were updated from the PAD guidelines. Can you start by giving us the highlights about what's changed with this revision? Yeah, sure. Um, thanks very much. I think the I think a, an important thing to note is that there is updates, but we didn't just take the uh, PICO questions from the PAD 2013 guidelines and try to re-answer them with new evidence. So there's a tremendous number of new questions, new areas um, that we explored um, in the PAD IS 2018 guidelines. Um, and, and there's some really important themes here. And, and uh, I think it, before I you know, get started talking about kind of the themes and how they're different, um, it is important to realize that these are, again, not a replacement. So there's extremely important um, recommendations and statements that are made in PAD 2013 um, that still stand. So this isn't a replacement for PAD 2013. People need to kind of use PAD 2013 and then augment it with the newer questions and information that we um, discovered and have published in the PAD IS 2018 guidelines. Um, most importantly, with the um, newer guidelines, we explored two new areas in far more detail that really were just sort of a mention in PAD 2013. So we have an extensive section on early rehabilitation and early mobilization, and then we um, have a, a fairly large section on sleep. Um, everything from how is sleep different in the ICU and different ICU populations to how we recognize sleep. Um, how we um, can help uh, improve disrupted sleep um, through both non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic outcomes. Um, so those are some of the more important areas. Um, the other thing that's a real trend is we really focused our outcomes in PAD-IS 2018 um, on post-ICU outcomes and not just on sort of the general ICU outcomes like duration, mechanical ventilation, um, length of ICU stay or ICU mortality or, or you know, for example, delirium resolution or pain control where possible. Um, that led to evidence gaps where, you know, some of the studies aren't necessarily done that explore um, the impact of various interventions we might do to focus on um, and reduce you know, the symptoms of pain, um, agitation, delirium, immobility, and sleep disruption. Um, but we but we really did strive to look at some of these important outcomes. Um, and and it's, it's important to, up front, to think about what's the most important outcomes that really will help ICU clinicians um, make decisions in the ICU in this area and not just focused um, 
sort of the perception of what you know, the evidence and what's already the studies that are already published. So that did lead to, um, you know, most of our recommendations being conditional rather than strong. Um, but we did help um, head some of that by putting a lot of um, evidence gap sections, really showing um, where the gaps in the literature are and what needs to be investigated before we really know the benefits and risks of, of many of these interventions. And, and bridging from that, you, you highlight that this is not a replacement from the PAD 2013 guidelines, but what parts of those guidelines did you keep in these uh, revisions and updates uh, for 2018? Yeah, no, that's a good question. And um, so we definitely, um, for uh, the sedation area, we did look at choice of sedatives. Um, so we did have a similar question um, for um, mechanically ventilated patients not admitted to a cardiac ICU. What would be the choice of sedation if sedation is needed? We did add a question looking at cardiovascular surgery patients because that's a little bit of a different population. We did have a PICO question focusing on light versus deep sedation, but again, looking at the longer-term outcomes. Um, for delirium, we certainly looked at both pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic um, interventions to both prevent, treat, and reduce. Um, we put a lot of focus um, in um, many of these questions on you know protocols and bundled care and bundled intervention where you're not just doing one thing you might be making multiple interventions for example early mobilization and uh, rehab you know there's a large pico question which we actually did um, have a pico question in pad 2013 um, but this time we're really looking not just delirium um, but we're really looking at you know both icu and post icu outcomes as well and then sleep is is completely brand new so i would say probably about 80 to 90 percent of the questions in pad is 2018 are, are really brand new pico questions the, one of the really unique things that I saw when reading through these guidelines was the composition of the committee who voted on the, the final guidelines, which included critical care survivors. What led to the decision to include critical care survivors, and, and what did they bring to the table that made these, make these guidelines unique? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just a, one quick clarification is um, the critical care survivors did not vote for the recommendations, um, but they were involved right from the get-go. So just uh, broadly, you know, real quick, um, it's, it's an expectation now in the clinical practice guideline world that patients are involved in all steps of the guidelines. And so we, working with the some of the McMaster group and methodologists that really helped support our guidelines, we realized from an early stage that this was um, extremely important to do when we started the guidelines about three and a half years ago. And I think at the and at the same time, you know, the role of family and patients and decision making in just daily bedside critical care decisions was was growing. And so distinct ways in which we did include patients in our guidelines included having them help rank the um, topic areas that then became our PICO questions that, again, were what we specifically answered to try to define recommendations. Some of the outcomes that we chose for these PICO questions, again, some of the longer-term post-ICU outcomes, these really resonated with patients. So we actually had individual interviews with patients on these outcomes. Um, patients were involved in every single call. So we, we kind of operated with an executive steering committee 
or team leaders methodologists, and then um, you know the chairs, myself and Yonas Grovek, and then we um, each of the five sections worked independently, having um, bi-monthly or monthly conference calls, and patients were on this. And where a lot of the effort happens with guidelines is working through what's called the evidence to decision process. So not only are you grading the evidence and the randomized studies to see what's there, but you're also as you take that evidence and try to see if you can make a recommendation, you're looking at the patient perspective, you're looking at resource issues, um, you know, the applicability and feasibility in the ICU, um, and all sorts of, of issues related to that. And and it's funny how patients being on this virtual table with, you know, some top experts um, actually helped raise really important questions. For example, um, you know, I, I was on a call with the sedation group and they were tackling the um, light versus deep sedation. And I think, you know, most experts and intensivists and ICU clinicians would, would expect that, well, yeah, we should, you know, keep patients as wakeful as possible. There's lots of benefits um, across the board. But it's interesting, you know, the patient jumped in and said, you know, there was times I didn't want to remember anything in the ICU. I wanted deep sedation. So hmm. it didn't mean that we stopped the um, PICO question, and we still do make a conditional recommendation that, you know, most patients should be managed with a light goal of sedation. Um, but, it, but we actually left, put a statement in the guidelines saying that, you know, when possible, ask the patient to see how much sedation they want, because there is an individualized patient um, input on that, and, and this could vary over the course of their ICU stay. So um, that's just one very, very small example, but it really was quite remarkable what's the um, patients got comfortable with the guideline group about how much input they actually provided. And then we had a live meeting, which was extremely important at SCSM Congress to, um, you know, really come to terms with the evidence, the recommendations, listen to you know, all members around the table because groups had been working somewhat in isolation among the five subsections. So this is when everybody came together, patients were on the table. And again, it was another just valuable informative session where people felt very comfortable talking about, you know, the pluses and minuses of um, all aspects of a decision that again would be leading to a recommendation that again would be voted on. So um, it was just, it was just amazing how much input these patients had. Yeah, it's fascinating to hear that statement that the patient said that there would be times when they would have preferred to forget everything. And um, I think that I'm really excited that that was able to be included in these guidelines. Um, if you were to sort of take off from from what you've done and while all these are important, what do you think the main points that you think clinicians should take away from these guidelines? Thanks, Kyle. I think there's a number of really important um points here. I think, as I've kind of alluded to already, the post-ICU outcomes really are important in critical care. So what we do in the ICU has a tremendous effect after patients leave the ICU if they survive. Um, I think that's been building and certainly, you know, SCCM's ICU liberation effort is really focused on that with using the ADF bundle and I think we'll talk about that in a second. Um, I think specifically um, you know, these guidelines are still focused on patient symptoms. So there's a patient there that has symptoms, and that's what we're trying to do is to alleviate the suffering and address these symptoms. I think that's extremely important to realize. In the pain section, one area that we focused on quite a bit was 
um, adjuvant analgesia. So, you know, using like a multi multimodal analgesia approach. So um, now certainly most of the data is in surgical ICU patients and in, even then it's in sort of subgroups of surgical patients, but we're one of the first guidelines for the ICU to really look at the use of um, you know, non-opioid analgesics um, in a combined fashion to um, help reduce opioid use, um, improve pain and comfort in patients. And obviously, you know, I think it's important for us at, in the ICU community with the opioid ap- epidemic, and there's certainly nothing in our guidelines saying we shouldn't be using opioids, but we need to be, you know, giving clinicians um, strategies and, and um, about how they can reduce opioids as patients transition from the ICU you know, to the floor and potentially home. So I think this is one um, very important um, area, realizing there's some big gaps in evidence. Um, I think with delirium, we also, in the delirium group, we realize it's a little more confusing that there's not going to be one great um, agent that's going to solve all the world's delirium problems to either prevent delirium or treat it. So there's an individualized approach that's needed, um, looking at patient symptoms. Um, I think the one thing we realize is that there's not really great drugs to prevent delirium, um, whether it's a statin or um, ketamine or um, in or uh, you know, and certainly an antipsychotic. The evidence is increasing, and so that's the important thing I think across the board is we're very careful. Um, not to make recommendations if there's an agent that could be used widely in the ICU that were that you know we felt there was um, a lack of evidence potential safety and cost issues for with widespread use so I think that's a particularly relevant area in delirium and in sleep um, I think early mobilization um, and early rehab and they're a little bit different but they were considered um, paired to be the same um, you know, the literature's gotten a little more confusing since, um, you know, sort of the landmark Schweikert study, which is the only study that was used to inform that PICO question in PAD 2013. There's a number of additional um, randomized control studies looking at different types of interventions that are delivered at different times and different intensity to different patient subpopulations. And so there's a lot of heterogeneity, but I think the guidelines do a really good job of exploring this heterogeneity. Um, Certainly there's a conditional recommendation that um, early rehab and mobilization should still be delivered to patients, but it's important that clinicians realize it sort of depends on the patient you have in front of you. I think the other big part, um, which is novel in the um, mobilization and rehab section, is that the group led by Dale Needham really has a, did a beautiful job of looking at starting and stopping criteria, because I think um, sort of potential barriers to use, um, whether either you're not doing a rehabilitation intervention or a mobilization intervention, or, or truncating it too early because of concerns, I think prevents a lot of um, these interventions from happening in routine ICU practice. So there's some good guidance to um, in the document to clinicians about how they might roll out and operationalize a, a rehab and mobilization plan. But again, it, it depends on individual patients and just want to put that proviso in. You know, we're not telling people what to do. We're making suggestions about where, um, you know, the safety might um, override the risk. Um, 
in the sleep section, um, you know, an extremely interesting section, because um, most of these PICO questions have never been looked at before. Most of the interventions where they're benefited, particularly the non-pharmacologic interventions, like, for example, um, reducing noise, using eye masks, um, earplugs, um, and sort of implementing a, a non-pharmacologic protocol, actually, you know, none of these are really showing a benefit in improving sleep, but there's a very consistent signal that you're going to reduce delirium. Um, and so we do spend quite a bit of guidelines just talking about how difficult it is to actually evaluate sleep in different populations. Um, even in a patient that's more awake that you might be able to do a, um, a you know, a nurse might be able to uh, deliver, uh, say, the Richard Campbell sleep scale to the patient. Even then, it, it there's, there's some, you know, there's some complexities with actually trying to be able to evaluate sleep quality in ICU patients. But it doesn't mean just because we're not seeing an improvement in sleep signal, um, when we are seeing substantial reductions in delirium, that's still sort of reason enough that we're making, um, you know, these recommendations in the sleep section to, you know, really ask patients about sleep and to. Um, you know, making sure that its ICUs have a um, non-pharmacologic sleep protocol in practice. Um, it's it's much more complex with pharmacologic sleep, and whether you're dealing with sort of initiation of sleep or you're worried about circadian rhythmicity where patients are sort of awake at night during the daytime, whether the patient has to learn whether they don't. And so we really actually don't make any recommendations on pharmacologic agents, um, which I know has been a frustration among some clinicians. It doesn't mean there's not going to be patients that benefit from a pharmacologic intervention, depending, for example, if they have delirium and they can't initiate sleep. Um, you know, there, there could be an agent like, say, a small dose of a uh, atypical antipsychotic like quetiapine could be beneficial in that patient, but there just isn't the evidence in these subgroups of patients to suggest that we should be using these agents on a routine basis in all our patients. You highlighted two sections there that I found interesting in the guidelines. One was the uh, multi multimodal therapies for pain control, and then the sleep section. And in you know, discussing them right now, you pointed out a lot of the subtleties in the literature and also the challenges in the literature. What challenges did the committee have in trying to present evidence but also call out that there are maybe some patient-specific factors where different therapies may be approached differently or that there may be uh, a lack of evidence but that lack of evidence is not the same thing as, as a um, repudiation of that practice? Yeah, and that's a really important question, and I think it's, um, I think the, the key thing is sort of how the grade process works, and so you're looking at, you know, at the end of the day, you really want to make a recommendation, and the, the what you don't want to do, which um, is frustrating to clinicians, and is saying, we can't make a recommendation on this, because then I feel as a guideline group that we're sort of letting ICU clinicians down. Um, and actually, in only a couple places did we actually say we can't make a recommendation. And that's where we found, you know, really huge gaps in literature, but where there wasn't a major safety or cost issue. So this is, for example, melatonin. So giving melatonin to improve sleep at night in the ICU, we actually made no recommendations. So we 
the, the evidence is quite weak. There's minimal randomized control evidence. However, melatonin is a fairly safe, cheap drug. So we didn't feel strong enough to say that we had concerns that we would um, make a conditional recommendation against using melatonin, but we didn't feel we had the randomized control efficacy data to suggest saying that we should be um, you know, using melatonin to improve sleep. Because what ends up happening if we state in the guidelines without efficacy is in institutions say, well, hey, the guidelines say this, why don't we start using a lot more melatonin? Um, for other drugs, for example, like, um, you know, propofol, we make a conditional recommendation against the use of propofol um, simply because, you know, the the sleep improvement effects are fairly minimal. Um, there's side effects of the drug, and it's not cheap. Um, and so we 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 feel that you know propofol should not be used in this um, context. So that's kind of one example. The other ways that we can get around patient subpopulations, and I think that it's a really important thing just to touch on because we have many, many different types of patients in our ICUs, mechanically ventilated, non-ventilated. We have neurologically injured patients. We have patients that are just passing through the ICU after major surgery. We have, you know, an elderly person in septic shock that might be there for two weeks. So we have all sorts of patients. And, you know, it's extreme. We're trying to make guidelines that are applicable to all critically ill adults in the ICU. And you know, our group did struggle a little bit with some of that because some of these studies were only done, like for example, the analgesia adjuvant or the multimodal analgesia, it was only done in certain surgical populations, for example, major abdominal surgery. So that's where we actually do put words into the recommendation to really make it clear um, that we're only talking about a certain subpopulation of ICU patients. It doesn't mean that it may be future evidence isn't going to show that a multimodal analgesia approach um, might work in medical patients, and there's probably lots of medical patients where clinicians might feel the benefits outweigh the risk, but we, it's hard for us to make a recommendation in the, with the lack of evidence. So those are kind of the things that we struggled with, um, and it's important that people you know, when people are reading the guidelines, that they carefully read the recommendation. And, you know, um, and in some cases we'll say, you know, should not be used in all ICU patients where there could be a very small subgroup that could benefit. Um, and then again, other times we're subgrouping and making it clear it's only in a subpopulation of patients. For example, dexmedetomidine may improve, um, reduce uh, delirium and agitation in mechanically ventilated patients, but the only randomized control study that really show, shows benefit is, is, a, you know, is, is the JAMA study from Australia that showed um, it was really in patients that were failing spontaneous breathing trials because they had agitated delirium. So we specifically make a fairly tight conditional recommendation just for that population and not that dexmedetomidine necessarily has a, a role in agitated delirium throughout the ICU in, say, non-intubated patients. It doesn't mean there's not going to be patients that don't benefit, but we, you know, based on the literature and um, the decision-making process through GRADE and with our group, um, we had to tailor that to the evidence. With the publication of this, there was a significant amount of supplemental materials that uh, were released as well. Where would you recommend the reader start to take it all in? Yeah, I think um, it. I think it depends on their focus. Um, it's a tremendous amount of material. Um, 
the types of material that we have are, um, you know, either a summary of the individual studies. So if people, like if we say six studies, people are like, well, what six studies are these? So people can just click, you know, if you go to the um, Cardiocrine Medicine website and access the document there, then you can just actually click and a Word document pops up and there's a table of all six studies. Um, so that would give you transparency on the types of studies. If people are interested, for example, in, um, you know, we did a lot of meta-analysis where possible, they really wanted to see, well, what was that forest plot like in terms of the spread of, you know, for a particular outcome between different studies, they could click and there's that forest plot, um, which visually to some people is important because they can sort of gauge um, where the heterogeneity and spread across the treatment effect. It, and then we have extensive, some things are actually valuable even to clinicians with adaptation. For example, when we were talking about massage therapy, we actually have a table that goes through all the different massage interventions that were done in patients to uh, reduce pain. And um, so if people want to look at, well, what did each study do, they could look there. Some of the larger supplements actually have carefully documented every part of the evidence and decision process. So while um, the, each group was working through a recommendation using this um, web-based system that, you know, again, asked with evaluating evidence and then all of the other perspectives that could inform the development of a recommendation like cost, patient perspective, feasibility, all those things, everything was being documented. So we basically have a virtual record now of all discussions that happened around all these hundreds of conference calls throughout the guidelines. So if someone really wanted to know and said, well, what was the group thinking or like, what's the exact rationale? I mean, we tried to summarize it in the guideline text, but if they really wanted to see it all, they could open up this document and there's page after page of all these discussions, which could be interesting to some people. That is an amazing collection of information that I think some of our listeners will be excited to uh, dive into when we think about these guidelines, they've been closely tied to the SCCM's ICU Liberation Initiative. Can you talk about that initiative broadly and the work you've done to ensure the guidelines and the ADF bundle are implemented uh, seamlessly? Yeah, absolutely. And um, this is a, a really important question. And it all sort of, you know, comes down to sort of the circle of quality improvement that's sort of never ending for any particular, you know, support disease or treatment that we provide our critically ill patients that we care for. And um, I like to look at this as, you know, we have the PAD 2013 guidelines that really helped inform the um, ABCDEF bundle. And then now we have the PAD IS guidelines again, as you know, we emphasized at the beginning of the call, shouldn't be replacing PAD 2013, but what the most important thing for clinicians to do, if they're using some or part of the A to F bundle as sort of the method to make change, is making sure that their practices are consistent with what's in the PAD IS guidelines. So, um, you know, there's not that many things in PAD IS guidelines that where there's not a framework in the ADF bundle, but there's certainly things about choices of drugs. There's things about, for example, with delirium, making sure that you have um, a non-pharmacologic sleep protocol that you're routinely using. So that's something that, you know, many centers maybe haven't 
thought of or aren't, aren't doing this routinely, but that should probably be um, you know part of the delirium part. Um, although I guess we could have a different letter for sleep. Um, again, you know, the A is for assessment and treatment of pain. So institutions will want to look at how they're, um, you know, assessing delivering pain and make sure, you know, are they optimizing where it's appropriate the use of um, uh, multimodal analgesia strategies. So those are some of the examples. Um, it, these guidelines should be used in the context of people's curtain practices and how they're making change. Um, and I assume most institutions are probably using a, something like the ADF bundle to do this. Um, and they're not really competing with the ADF bundle. And guidelines are informing practices, but they're not necessarily the way to um, actually do it and make change. Because as we know from the IC liberation effort, um, it's all about um, there's, there's so many factors that come into play here in terms of ICU uh, teamwork and who's doing what, um, communication, um, you know, the uh, IT support that you have to do things. Um, it, the list goes on and on and on. And, um, and so that's, you know, the PET-IS guidelines is helping inform those decisions, but it's not replacing them. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, just from a broader perspective, we're seeing more and more papers come out. And, you know, the ADF bundle paper that came from Sutter that Marianne Barnes Daly published last year had a really important message in that it doesn't really matter where institutions start with making change and whether they make changes to E or start with E or they decide I'm really going to focus on um, pain assessment and treatment or whether I'm going to try to do all at once. But the incremental compliance with each of these uh, individual bundle components has demonstrable improvements in patients, including patient mortality, ICU mortality. So um, the more compliant you are to these bundles with the best evidence, the greater improvements in patient outcome that you're going to see. But, but everybody recognizes that, you know, people can't just take PET-IS, take the ADF bundle and say, tomorrow we're just going to start doing everything. It takes an incremental, well-thought-out and well-planned effort for ICUs to really make change. And it's, again, it's not the nurse director doing it alone. It's not the intensivist doing it alone. It's not the critical care pharmacist. It's the team figuring out um, how we're going to, um, um, you know, accomplish this and make change with all of this. And, you know, there's a fair bit of variability between institutions and depends on structure and who does what. And so there's an individualized approach that needs to be used. I would urge people, though, to look at our implementation and integration paper that was published also in September um, uh, volume of Critical Medicine. And that really gives a lot of ideas about how to use the guidelines and also how to use the guidelines in um, existing practices to continue to make change. Because um, the last thing anybody who is on the guideline group wants to see is that these guidelines just sort of get shelved and they're not used as a sort of uh, part of a, you know, an effort to help making change in daily um, ICU clinical practice. You've given us a lot to think about uh, with that last little section there. And I, I was just wondering, have you seen ways that this can be implemented very poorly that lead to bad outcomes? Well, I think it kind of, I guess you could say that. I think it's all about sustainability, making change in the ICU, right? And so I, sometimes when change is made hastily or people are doing too much and, um, you know, the safety and, you know, ability of the 
team to be able to, you know, make safe interventions with patients and sort of do this in a sustainable fashion, I think that can really suffer. And the worst thing, you know, from my experience of critical care is trying to do too much too fast. And, you know, the clinicians have concern, they get maybe stressed or overwhelmed, and the resources aren't there, and you don't have a plan. And um, that could potentially, I think, um, you know, affect the sustainability. And in some instances, it could affect, um, you know, patient safety. So I think it's important to really step back and think about how, um, you know, invitations can happen. And again, doing it in a more measured step-by-step process rather than trying to do everything all at once. I think it's important, too, that, you know, there's consensus. People, it's really important that people talk about what they're currently doing in sort of the A to F bundle approach you know, talk about what um, guideline recommendations have come out and then think about the change that's needed, how they're doing. And it takes this constant sort of ICU team self-reflection to, um, you know, be honest about what we're doing um, and um, making change and realizing that, you know, there could be quite a bit of, especially in, you know, larger community hospitals or academic centers, there could be, um, you know, a fair bit of heterogeneity between different clinicians about what they feel is appropriate and what's not appropriate. And, and that has to be managed. It's a real thing. And it's something that, you know, it came up in our guidelines. And we did this through a lot of communication and respect and listening. And, you know, sometimes this is around the phone, but a lot of, t- you know, we had this two-day meeting at SEC in Congress, and that went a long way for people to realize other people's perspectives and sort of come to a consensus. Because at the end of the day, um, you know, everybody voted with our guidelines, which is um, a little bit unheard of, and we just had a lot of respect. It was just a really good team-based approach, and it doesn't mean that people don't have different opinions at the end of the day among guideline authors, but I think there's respect for differences, and again, it's coming together as a whole ICU team to make change and, and figure out the priorities and um, and do it in a safe, efficient, and um, hopefully sustainable way. Thank you, John, for taking the time out of your busy day to talk to us about this important new guideline and all that went into it. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care Podcast. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Kyle Enfield. Kyle Enfield, MD. Kyle Enfield, MD, is an Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the University of Virginia. He received his undergraduate degree from the University of Oklahoma. He received his joint medical and master's degrees in epidemiology at the University of Oklahoma Health Science Center and went on to complete his residency and fellowship at the University of Virginia. In July of 2013, Dr. Enfield was appointed as the Medical Director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit at the University of Virginia. From 2009 through July 2016, he was the Assistant Hospital Epidemiologist there, and he remains the Co-Medical Director of the Special Pathogens Unit. Dr. Enfield's clinical interests are in critical care medicine and transport of critically ill patients. His academic interests are the epidemiology and prevention of healthcare-associated conditions, including multidrug-resistant organisms acquisition and healthcare-associated infections. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved.
Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.